This week on the In-Depth Podcast, Canelo Alvarez, the professional boxer is an icon in the sport with multiple world championships in four different weight classes. He's set to step into the ring against Jermel Charlo on Saturday, September 30th, as he looks to defend his undisputed super middleweight titles. For that reason, we look back at our May 2021 interview, where he gave us rare access into his life, opening up about what fueled his return from a doping scandal. He was one of the persons that I have most wanted to cut his head off. And sounds off when discussing boxing legend Oscar De La Hoya. He's worried about drinking, being in other things. He's not golden boy. Plus, I ask for a prediction that won't disappoint. If the two of you each fought each other in your primes, what do you think would happen? He would have nothing to do with me. Our interview with Alvarez is different from any we've done in that he speaks in Spanish the entire time. So you'll hear an on-site interpreter who fed me Alvarez's responses in real time, but our conversation begins with a discussion about his interests outside of boxing. I was actually gonna start off by talking about business. Um, you've said before that one of your goals is to be a great businessman. Uh, how so? I want to be a billionaire in business. That's what I want. Millionaire in business. I did not study a, a career. I come from a very modest beginnings, but I like to learn. I like to know many things. And I have a lot of things right now. I could retire and I could live, you know, peacefully, but I like what I do. Boxing is my life. Until I can, I'll be doing it. I've always wanted boxing to be something just what I like doing, something that I love, and not do it for money, for the money. So always boxing, I do it because I love it, I enjoy it, not because I'm going to earn money. On the business front, uh, what would you say your goals are? I like real estate a lot. This comes from seeing friends. And you started investing in real estate. As I said, right now, I'd have enough to retire right now from everything that I've invested. Every three months, I have between four and five million dollars that I receive from my investments every three months. So I have enough, of course, to retire and have absolutely no problem. And I, But I love boxing. I'm going to open very soon. I'm opening between 90 to 100 gas stations that are going to be called Canelo. When you go to the gas station, everything's Canelo. That's the challenge I have to make that true. And I understand you also enjoy investing in new technologies and taking risks. I like, I don't like to risk all my money. You have to be intelligent, you have to be smart and place some money on at risk and say, this money is at risk. Whatever happens, I know it's a risk and I'm not counting on it. But when you put something at risk, you risk something to win. You risk a lot to win a lot. So of course, this has to be a certain amount that you say, okay, I'll put this at risk, but I'm gonna earn a lot, but I'm not dumb either. I'm not going to put all of your money at risk because why? Well, you can get a lot of money quickly or you can quickly have nothing. So let's not be such a stupid idiot. And correct me if I'm wrong, you have no interest in coaching or commentating someday. 
I've always said this. They've always asked me, when you retire, will you be a commentary or trainer or manager? I don't like watching box. I enjoy doing it myself. I enjoy what I'm doing, but I'm not saying I'm going to be a promoter or commenting. No, that doesn't really, I don't like that. And if you weren't a, a boxer, you've said you would have liked to have been a Formula One driver. And now that I know golf, maybe a golfer. Uh, and, and you uh, played in the American Century Celebrity Golf Tournament in Lake Tahoe. How about the best part uh, for you of that? I'm a person who doesn't like to make new friends, but I met Curry and I'm very fortunate. I met him and he's a great person, person that he has all of the fame in the world, but he's a very humble person, very simple person. Good family. His family, his father, and I think, for me, that was the best part that I lived in experiencing that tournament. I hear uh, you've been watching a lot of Tiger Woods videos for practice purposes. All the time. Since 1997, when he won his first Masters, Tiger, I've watched him. For me, I don't want to offend anyone, but for me, he's the best in history. Why? Because he made some shots that were incredible. Incredible. What do you gain from watching videos of his, I mean, in terms of how it helps you with your game? I'm a person that learns watching by watching. So I'm a person who learns by watching, and this is why I watch him. I'm running and I'm watching him on my on my machine. I don't run on the street because I have two knee surgeries, so I can't run on pavement. But I run on my machine, and I'm always watching him there because I'm a very visual person. I learn by seeing, and therefore I watch him. I see how he does it, how he holds the putt, just to putt, how he does the shot, everything. Everything, the swing, I learn by, because I'm a very visual. And interestingly, you don't like uh, listening to music when you run, right? No. Yeah. No, no me gusta. No, I don't like it. I don't like to listen to music. I've never liked to. I like to be thinking what I'm going to be doing in the fight. I motivate myself by thinking about many things. I want to take you back to when you were a young boy and growing up. I understand you'd uh, chop fruit for popsicles, for water. How early on were you and uh, your siblings working? The truth is that I've always said it. Since I was five, I worked with my father. He taught me to work a lot. At five, I wanted to start driving the trucks and selling popsicles, but my father said, not yet, not yet. So when I turned seven, I started selling popsicles on buses. And the truth is, I've always said that my father taught us to work, to be responsible. I owe my father a lot because he taught us to be good men, men of good values, always. When I was five, I'd take his lunch. It took me about an hour on the bus. And one day a lady wanted to steal from me. 
of steal you. Imagine a five-year-old boy at five, and I said, this is strange, she's following me. So when I was almost getting there, close by, my brother came out and I said, this woman is following me. So he said, run. And I started running and I fell because there were a lot of people. It was, was a place where there were a lot of people. And she holds me by the foot. My brother wanted to take and she bit my brother because he was defending me. She bit my brother. So I get back to the popsicle store and I said, father, father, somebody wanted to kidnap me. And to finish, they had to call the police because she was saying that I was her child and that they had stolen me from her in the U.S. So they had to call the police. My father had to go declare. So, and she was saying, of course, my father had to prove I was her, his son because she said I was her son that they had kidnapped in the States. Your dad, when you, you were working, um, he, you know, had you working a, a lot. H how did you do uh, the one time he had you take a cart to sell popsicles? You were shy, I oh. heard. The first times that I would get up on the bus to sell, yes, I was shy. I felt a little ashamed. I'll tell you why. Because since I'm a redhead with freckles, people in Mexico, when you're a redhead, they, they come and they they kind of like make a little, they hold you and they pinch you. People pinch redheads in Mexico. And this made me very mad. People just pinch redheads. They said, you know, I was ashamed. So I'd get on and people say, a redhead, a redhead, and start pinching everybody. So that's why I was shamed. For your family, how tight was money when you were a kid? It was difficult. I'm going to tell you why it was difficult. We were eight, eight children at home. And my father had the ice cream store. All day he worked. It was very difficult. We rented a house that was a thousand. My father paid a thousand pesos per rent. We were eight, eight children. And all of us, there's just one year between every brother and sister except me, five years and then me. So for my father, it was very difficult. But never, ever did we not have anything to eat. Never. That never happened. For me, people say, did you suffer a lot and you suffered a lot? I didn't suffer. Obviously, I didn't have a lot of things or maybe I struggled to get a few things and because I had a daughter when I was 17 and sometimes I struggled. I didn't have her diapers for rent for her milk and that made it difficult, but I didn't suffer because I didn't know anything else. I just knew that I didn't know about anything else. So why would I suffer? How did you see your parents doing it, like saving money to take care of the kids? My father, I admire him a lot. I really admire him because we were eight and always his priority was us, that we had enough to eat. Once a year, he would take us to the beach, that type of thing. Today, when I am aware of this, I can appreciate it. Uh, what role did your mother play? My mother, imagine, uh, one year between each child, so, and she took care of all of us. While my father worked, she would take care of us, feed us, cook, always. Having to move around a lot as a kid, uh, what do you think you learned from that? 
pues para cuando estás cuando estás cuando when estás you're very chico, young you have your friends at school you have your friends in your neighborhood there and it's difficult ¿no? to move este it's difficult to move and make friends again and you know battle with everyone you have to fight everyone because they tell you freckle face and they laugh at you again so you have to you know fight all of them again so it's really hard but you learn a lot you learn a lot because when you grow up and this is what i think when you grow up you start to be able to be anywhere anywhere move around anywhere do anything and and it's not difficult anymore. And, and I understand moving away from your maternal grandmother was particularly difficult. Yes, we lived there, and my maternal grandmother, for us, for me, is my greatest love. She's a very special person, unique. She scolds us a lot. She even spanked us a lot, but she's very special. She's someone that I always takes care of you. She's always asking about you. For me, she, I always say it, she's the greatest love I have in my life. So it was very difficult, but that's what I say. You learn through life to go through situations that are complicated, but it's part of life. Your parents divorced when you were 13. How do you think that impacted you? For me, for me, it was very difficult. Very difficult because I was part of that divorce. I lived it. I experienced it. I was there. I know what happened. Of course, I'm not going to be saying, telling it here, but I knew what happened. I saw what happened. It was a very huge impact, especially I was 13. But... I don't know. God gave me a mindset that's very strong. I stayed with my father. I do live with him. Of course, there were a lot of temptations where I lived. Drugs, alcohol. Never in my life, never, have I tried any drug. Never. When I started boxing, I said, this is what I want to do. And nothing is going to stop me. I decided to be a boxer. Your brother, Rigo, uh, told me around that time you were really lonely, too. In what ways were you lonely uh, back then? All of my brothers and sisters were married by then. I was the only one living with my parents at that time. When they were separated, my father was always working, so I was alone, totally alone. When I say alone, it's alone. To what extent did Rigo almost become a father figure? See, para me. Yes, for me, Rigo, he sees me as a son, but to me, he was my inspiration to become a boxer. That is it. He was my inspiration. And obviously, he's my brother. I love him a lot. I admire him. And I have always said, in boxing, I didn't start because I had an idol or I saw someone boxing. I saw my brother fight his first professional fight, and that's when my love for boxing was born, and he gave me my first gloves. What, what about watching him in his first bout 
impacted you so much? For me, when I saw him fighting his professional debut, my eyes lit up. And that was when I decided, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a boxer. And I never got that out of my mind. I said, this is what I want with my life. I'm going to be a boxer. This is what I want. This was the greatest impact in my life for being the boxer that I am today. He always said that he saw something special in me. He saw my fighting spirit, my courage. People are born with talent, are born to be something. My brother was born to guide me towards boxing. What do you remember from the first time meeting Chepo? When I started training, I trained with my brother Rigo in his garage. We had the boxing sack there, and I'd put on my gloves, and I was training there. And one day, my brother Sigo said, I can no longer train you. Your capacity for learning is very fast, and I don't know what else to do. I am a boxer, but I don't know how to train you. So we're going to fight an amateur fight. And Chippo was there. And he told me, I want you to go over there and meet him. So I fought. I was going to fight. And Chippo said, Chippo told my brother, the, the one he's fighting against is very big, much older. And my brother told him, no, just wait and see, wait and see. He is much older, but you're going to see what's going to happen. Just wait. So I fought and I knocked him out in the second round. So Chepo said, no, yes, he's great. And he said, I want to take him to the gym, my brother said. And that's how I met Chepo. What was the age of the oldest fighter you knocked out when you were a kid? 30, 35, and I was 14. <laughs> how does that happen? I was born for this. Why did you uh, drop out of school for boxing? I never liked school. I never liked it really. I always went because I had to go. But when I came to know boxing, when I debuted professionally at 15, I was in eighth grade. And that was when I was alone by that time. Two years since my parents had divorced, I was alone, I could decide what I wanted to do. And I said, I don't want to study anymore because I was wasting time at school. I couldn't be running in the morning because I was at school. So it was very difficult to train and also I had to work with my father. So it was very difficult and I said, no more school. I don't do anything at school to begin with. My notebooks were blank. So, so what I'll do is I'll dedicate myself to what I want to be, to work and boxing. What did your parents or brother say? My father got very mad. He was very mad. He didn't want to let me be a boxer. He didn't want to let me be a boxer. He didn't want to. And I would escape from work. I'd escape from work. And he scolded me a lot. And I said, you know what? Whether either if you get angry, you hit me, whatever you do, I'm never going to leave boxing. You're going to get mad your entire life because I'm never going to leave this. Are, are you glad, looking back now, that you left school when you did? Yes, of course. I don't repent at all. I don't tell my children that, of course. They have to study. They have to study. But, of course, I don't regret it at all. I tell my children, mine 
or other circumstances, but today I have the opportunity to be able to give my children a better school, a better life maybe, or a better example of what I saw, lived. And I'm not saying that this example that I saw made me the man that I am today. So I'm not complaining, because if I hadn't had that, I would just have been someone living off my father, and I would have been just a child that was a spoiled boy, pampered. But based on what I lived through, it's me. And I was able to go on and achieve everything by myself. And I don't complain, because this is what made me become who I am. It's interesting you talk about boxing being your destiny. And at the time, I was talking to Rigo about this, uh, he said uh, you started working at the car wash, but you came very close to actually leaving the sport because of the, the money you needed to you know, support a, a new family, right? I never thought about leaving boxing. Never thought that, no, Alaya, never thought about really leaving. Whatever happened, I never thought of leaving boxing. I didn't start boxing to earn money. That's not why I came to boxing. I came to boxing because I loved it. I didn't need the money because I worked and I didn't need a lot. And I was alone. When I had my daughter, of course, then I needed milk, diapers. It was really difficult for me. So then I was working and when I was fighting, then I knew what the money was for, for milk and the rent and the diapers. But I didn't start in this because of money. I understand when you were an amateur, the national government um, deceived you, uh, lied to you many times. How so? I decided to become a professional because of that. Because when I was going to represent Jalisco in the National Olympics, if you win a gold medal, they'll give you a certain amount each month. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough for the bus fare, etc. They never helped me out. That, I never received one cent. They stole everything, the people from the government who were going to give that aid. So when I was 15, I wasn't fighting. I went to the places and I didn't fight because nobody wanted to fight against me because I had won the gold medal. So I was becoming very disillusioned. With Chepa, I was training all the time and I don't fight, I told him. This is why I train, to fight. And he said, prepare, because in one month you're going to have your professional debut at 15, and that was the best thing I did. I understand your rise to fame was sudden, almost unexpected. You didn't really see it coming. How so? I always dreamed with the best, always dreamed. I always said I want to do this, I always dreamt of being the best, but I never imagined the magnitude of what was coming to be so famous. I don't like cameras, I've never liked cameras, I've never liked giving interviews. I started learning, I don't like it. I've kind of been shy always, a little bit timid, but I started working. I started learning with the years. I always imagined the best in boxing, but I didn't imagine the magnitude of what it would be. 
what is happening to me, I imagined the best, but never this, of what is happening. The legend Julio Cesar Chavez uh, said back then, uh, you guys at Televisa have created a monster by way of publicity. And I know at the time in reading articles, um, that bothered you. What about it uh, got to you back then? I've always been a very strong mindset. I've had a very strong mind. Whatever people say, it doesn't really hurt me a lot or impact me. People who criticize you is because they're envious of you. And coming from Julio Cesar Chavez, if he said that, he never won what I have won. But that's what I mean. I don't want to be like him. I'm doing my own history. I respect him, but they also have to respect what I do, because in his moment, everybody criticized him too. But this is, this is what we have in Mexico. We never support each other. I don't include myself in that. I always like to, when somebody from Mexico wins, I'm always very happy. But people don't want to uh, support their equals from Mexico. And I say, feel proud because wherever I go, wherever in the world, I paint red, I paint green, white, and red that place, the colors of my flag. So feel proud about that. But in Mexico, it's very difficult. I want to ask you about some of the toughest moments of your life because you've had a ton of success and it's likely how you navigated those challenges that are responsible for making you into the champion you are today. For me, it was very difficult. Many things. I promise that 56 fights I've had about probably 46, 48, where I always had a problem. But I think my most difficult moment in my life was when I had to separate from the mother of my oldest daughter. My oldest daughter was two years old, and it was a very important moment, having to leave my daughter at that time when her father was everything for her. She cried and she said, Father, why aren't you here with us? And Father, I want to see you. I cried many nights alone in my house. I cried many nights. But my mind always said, I had to do it. I have to do it because it wasn't a good life. And that was not going to let me grow in that life. So I had to do it. It hurt me a lot. My daughter, it hurt leaving my daughter, but I had to do it. I believe in 2012, one of your brothers was accused of murder. How did you handle that on your end, just going through that with one of your brothers? It was very difficult because the public figure is me, right? And they always say, Canelo's brother, Canelo's this or that. So it was very difficult, always. I tried to tell my brothers and sisters, when they tell me I love you a lot, they tell me, I said, that's good. It's good that you love me a lot. But if you love me, don't do stupid things. Because the person who they're going to be affected will be me. I'm going to help you. But I'm going to be the one most affected. So it was very difficult for me. At that time when they accused him, which obviously it was not true, 
We proved that, but imagine your brother being accused of killing someone. How did you guys get through it at the time? As always, go ahead, just keep forging forward. Go forward, and I told my brother, always, you are in the place you shouldn't be. Be well, be well with your family. My brother doesn't drink anymore. He doesn't party that much anymore. That's, I think that things happen for a reason always. I was talking to uh, Carla the uh, other day, uh, you know, who obviously works closely with, with you, and she said uh, the fondest memory of your career for her was when you came back after your six-month suspension to beat Triple G. How much is that the case for you? I had very difficult months because I was accused of having done something anti-doping, a substance. It was a very low percentage. In meat, all meat here has clenbuterol. If you eat here a piece of meat in Mexico, you go and do the test and you're going to be positive for clenbuterol. But that's not doping. And it was very difficult for me. It was very difficult, but in my mind, I always thought, I have to win. I just have to win. I just have to beat this asshole. I just have to beat him. And so it started out as the worst year, and it ended up as the best year. What's your reaction when you're watching him come out and say what you're saying about contaminated meat's a bunch of lies? I'm going to just really beat his face in, clobber him. I think that I've never been disrespectful to my rivals, etc. But that he was one of the persons that I have most wanted to cut his head off. How do you explain to the public what back then what the truth is and and feel like they you know believe you? That's what I'm saying. I didn't have to prove to anyone. These aren't steroids. What I, what happened was not steroids. They're not catalogs as steroids. After what happened to me, then they turned it into legally, certain percentage legally, after what happened to me, because it exists in the meat here. I think that most people, most media, whether you explain or not, they're not going to want to understand you ever. They're always going to want to fuck you over. So I never really worried about explaining or for them to understand me. Right. Well, that's the challenge, though, then with the fans, because they just read media headlines and don't actually get a chance to learn you know what the truth is. Yeah. I don't get worried about that because my fans who know me, they believe me and they're always on my side. I don't need to explain that that didn't happen because they knew I was training at 100%. They see me dedicated to my family, to training. I don't have to tell them anything or explain. I'm very grateful to my fans. Long-term health concerns associated with boxing. How much does that concern you? No, 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 not really. The truth is no. I know the risks that I have in boxing. I got up on the ring and maybe I know that I won't be coming down from the ring. 
Maybe I'll come down dead from the ring. I know, but I know that. And I always say goodbye to my family before I get up on the ring. I always say goodbye to them because I don't know if I'm going to come down alive from the ring. I say, don't worry, don't cry, because if I die, I'm going to die doing what I love most. How many concussions do you think you've had over the years? I think none. None. I don't let them hit me. I don't let them hit them, me, obviously. No strong blows. Any lasting damage to your body from Nada. the career so far? Um, look at me how handsome I am. Just look at me. <laughs> I read an article where you said early on as a parent, um, you thought you should create every opportunity in the world for your kids, but you eventually learned you needed to hold back a little bit. What was that learning process like for you? When I started having everything, all the money, all that type of thing, I always said, well, I'm going to give my daughter what I did not have. And I gave her everything. There was a moment when I said, I'm wrong. This is a mistake. I'm making a mistake because life is not like this. You're going to turn them and your children into dependent on something, which is you. What, what made you realize that? I don't know. One night, I think every night, I, I think about what I do right, what I do wrong. One night I said, I think I'm making a mistake. I'm making a mistake because I want to give everything I did not have, but I'm going to make her depend on those things. I'm never going to have her earn things or do things or knowing that she has to earn things, do things to earn them, to earn everything. So that, even though I have what I have and they're not lacking anything, but always I say, you have to earn it yourself. You have to earn it yourself. You have uh, three daughters and uh, uh, no, two daughters. Two daughters and one son. They have different mothers. What's the biggest challenge of that? And in terms difficult. of parenting. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Too difficult. Because I can't give them all the same attention that I have with this small daughter that I'm with her mother. I can't give them the same attention. So it's very difficult. My oldest daughter, I cried with her in Miami. Because many things that happen. And it's very difficult for me uh, to be just on the phone. I call them every day, but it's difficult for me to be personally with them. I meet her in San Diego training, etc. So with the youngest daughter, I'm with her mother, so I come home and we're here, all of us together, no problem. But with the other two, it's more difficult because I don't live with them. Do you think you'll ever be able to, or will that kind of be the situation forever? I hope. I hope that one day I, it will be easier. How old were you the first time you found out you were going to become a father? I was 16. What, what was your reaction? My reaction was 
take my girlfriend to live with me. She was pregnant. I rented a house, a thousand pesos a month, and we went to live together. And I said, well, that's it. The fight against uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr., the uh, only loss of your career, how did it affect you? It was very sad. It hurt me very much. I wanted to beat him, be the best. I always say, God always knows why he does things. Maybe at that moment, if I would have won, imagine all of the fame, all of the money at that time. I wasn't going to be able to control it. I'd gone crazy. I didn't have the experience, the maturity, what I am today, to be able to manage it. At that, I wasn't going to be able to beat him then at all. The fight, if you look at it, didn't do anything to me. I was kind of sick of it. I didn't have the experience I have today. I wasn't the boxer I am today. Very different. But at that, that hurt me a lot. But at that time, I thought, I'm not going to let this kill my dreams. One day, I'm going to be the best boxer in the world. And now I am. Were you depressed at the time after it happened? No. I've never had depression, thank goodness. My mindset is very strong. My mind is very strong. I did get very sad, very sad. But I always thought, I'm going to be the best one day. But never in my life, thank goodness, thank God, have I had depression. Because I am sure of myself and I know what I can do and what I am. What do you think you learned from that fight? I learned to grow, I think, to not let myself fall, whatever happens. If the two of you each fought each other in your primes, what do you think would happen? He would have nothing to do with me. If we were both at our prime, our best prime, he would have nothing against me. Meaning you would, you would beat him? I would knock him out. What do you think of his fight against Logan Paul? It's an exhibition, just to make money. You, you think it's kind of stupid though, right? The celebrity battle? It has no relevance, really. It's just for show, to make money. As you say, it's stupid. Who do you think wins? <laughs> I think even the question is offensive. <laughs> Meriwether, obviously. <laughs> Well, um, but, like, do you have concerns that if this continues that somebody's actually going to get hurt? I mean, you saw what happened to Nate Robinson in the... I've always said that. It's kind of scary, almost. I have nothing against anyone. I'm not a fan of saying bad things. They gave him a boxer's premier license when he's not a boxer. They could kill him. This is not a football game, soccer game. They could get killed, and that's the proof. How, what that happened, how it went for him. Why did they give him a license, a permit, someone who has never given a blow? If there's a death, the commission will be responsible because they gave the permit for the fight. What do you think of Mike Tyson, though? No, so Mike that, that was impressive. Yeah. For me, after everything that happened, the way he was, his life he was leading, to see him again physically okay, in his work okay, for me, it was 
Forget the fight. Just to see him physically 100%, that was very pretty. It's a great example for everyone. Oscar De La Hoya, the first time that it was evident trouble was starting to happen was when you made clear he was no longer welcome at your camp or other Golden Boy executives. What do you think of him today? Mira. Look, I don't like to talk about people, but I've been very loyal person always. And I was very loyal always with Golden Boy. He, he is not Golden Boy. He doesn't do anything in Golden Boy. He's worried about drinking, being in other things. He's not Golden Boy. The decisions are taken by other people. He is not Golden Boy. For me, I always was a very loyal person. And what they did, what they were doing, the only boxer, when Richard left Golden Boy, Richard Schaefer, he took all the fighters, all the boxers to PVC. And, and you and Richard were close. Yes, he took all of them, and he also wanted to take me. And I was the only boxer that stayed with Golden Boy because I am a loyal person, a loyal man. But then, then I understood why everyone had gone and why Richard Sheffield went, left, because those who are in Golden Boy, they just are looking after their own benefit, not the boxer's benefit. Because you've said that there's no loyalty in Oscar De La Hoya. There's no loyalty, none. They don't even know what that is. What made you realize that? We had a lawsuit in Miami, which I knew we would win because they were lying. So we won that lawsuit, but the jury determined that I wasn't under an agreement, but I had to give him $8 million. But before that, when I signed before the fight with Golden Boy, I agreed something with them, came to an agreement. Here's your money, I'm not going to talk about that. So things happened. And then I became aware that they were only concerned about themselves, not about me. Explain what happened where you were stripped of your belt because Golden Boy was unable to reach an agreement. We were in that lawsuit, the lawsuit that I mentioned in Miami, and they wanted to decide me to go to some bid because I was in the middle of a, this lawsuit. And I said, well, just take it away. Well, they wanted to go to an auction or something. I took, they took the championship and then I fought with Golovkin in the end. But I said, well, take it away from me. That's okay. The other belt they took away, Golden Boy never told me they were taking it away. That's why I got mad. Explain how it works where Golden Boy contractually agrees with the zone that you're going to fight Triple G, yet your contract with Golden Boy doesn't state that you have to fight Triple G. Yes, it was something else. They promised the zone things that maybe were not going to happen, but in my contract, I said, the fights are for so much, but if I fight against Golovkin or Meriwether or a name like that, that's to be negotiated. 
That was my contract. We'll negotiate that. I'm not going to fight for the same amount. Negotiate. But Golden Boy had already promised, had already signed to the zone that I was going to fight for surely for Gonovkin for the same amount. And they never told me. I had done another agreement, another contract. I made another contract favorable to me, of course. But what I wanted to demonstrate, show everyone, all the Latins, is that I sued Golden Boy and the Zone together. Imagine how big. Nobody really does that. Nobody is going to go out on and do that. What did I want to show everyone? If you're right, and if you know that you did things right, you don't have to be afraid to do something as huge as this, because you know that you will win, because you did things correctly. In 2018, you signed this massive deal with the zone. It's five years, 11 I, fights, I, I, 365 million. And then by 2020, you're in the, the lawsuit you mentioned. I earn more now than with that contract so that you can see what I did, the lawsuit I had to go through. What happened where it got to the point where DAZN said they weren't going to pay in 2020? Yes, that they weren't going to pay the same amount. They said, and I said, I, there's no reason why I have to fight for, maybe I would have done it. Maybe I would have done it, but I'm in my moment. I'm in my moment now. I have to take advantage of all opportunities. I have to take advantage of them for me, because each one of the people always look for their own benefit. They're not going to look for your benefit. Even though I earn less, I'm not going to let you say what I have to earn. And being a free agent, now means a lot to you. It's the best thing I've ever done because I can do what I want. The fights you see, my arrangements, I fought December, February, and I'll fight in May again. Easy. No complications. COVID. Um, tell about the donation you made to those on the front line. I don't like to talk about that. I don't like to talk about the donations I make because they come from my heart. I don't like to have any advertising or for myself publicity, so I wouldn't really like to talk about that. How did you see the pandemic impacting those in Mexico? It has affected all of us. Me, everyone, Mexico. They don't care about the pandemic. We were one of the countries with most cases because it wasn't taken care of. It's been very, there were a lot of jobs that have been lost, too many. But I've always said everything passes. All will pass and we have to go on. Uh, the night before we were supposed to fly here many weeks back, what happens? I had COVID. I got COVID. How did you find out? I started first with no smell or taste, sense of smell or taste. I did the test and I had to be 15 days in isolation. My wife had it too. 
so I had to isolate myself 15 days. I only trained one month because I was just here because I had COVID. I didn't tell anyone because I didn't really feel anything. I had no other symptoms except what I said, no taste or smell. But I got COVID after I got well. I did the test again. I went to San Diego and was only able to train one month. How did that impact you? Nothing, no. Yes. I don't want to say as if, you know, nothing happened because I've known a lot of people who have gotten it very hard or have died. The father of a good friend of mine, it affected his lungs. It's always blood coming out of his lungs. But for me, it did not affect me a lot, but it's complicated. How have you seen it impact the sport of boxing? It affected not only boxing, everything, because the pandemic doesn't let you have the fans there. It's almost been a year since we were having fights. For me, it was 13 months without a fight. So it has affected us a lot. How do you see boxing rebounding in 2021 as we start to come out of the pandemic? I am very proud. It makes me very proud. The last fight, 12,000 people were there. December, 12,000 people. In February, 15,000. So to be able to reactivate this really motivates me, makes me proud because it will reactivate all of this. Thank you very much for doing this. I know uh, it's a longer interview than you're used to. I appreciate you having us to your uh, beautiful home. It's been a lot of fun. You are the first that I invite here for this type of interview. I never, I like my privacy, I value it a lot. I know I'm a public figure and I don't have a lot of privacy, but I always try for my family and my house to be something very private. You're the first who has been here who's going to do this. So enjoy it. Thanks for listening to my chat with Canelo Alvarez. There's plenty more Canelo content, including a tour of his house and horse ranch. Plus, a 100-mile-per-hour ride in one of his off-road vehicles. Go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. Thanks again for listening.